Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 56 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by Legacy Specialists R&Q and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. We release an overdue third edition of our quarterly e-magazine GCP Insights on the 9th of September and we really went to town on ESG, that is environmental, social and corporate governance and its relevance to captives, a topic we're producing a lot of content on at the moment. It always gets a great reaction on uh, LinkedIn and from listeners and subscribers um, and we do have more to come on it. I do know, however, that a lot of industry folk uh, are sceptical about its relevance or application to captives, but I do hope that this Insights edition and recent episodes and future episodes will broaden the discussion further and get some much-needed debate and action going. I, I know for a fact it is coming up, ESG, that is, increasingly regularly in captive boardrooms and of, and of course corporations are having to take it more seriously and take action if they're not already we know of course there are reporting uh, requirements now within the eu within the uk and it's definitely coming down the road in the us as the sec have have already said so we set out in the magazine particularly with the help of aon and london and capital how captives can certainly play a role so links to that edition can be found in the episode show notes or just give globalcaptivepodcast.com a visit and hit the GCP Insights tab. It is free to read. You just need to fill out a little form and you'll get to download or, or use the e-reader on the website. So later in this episode, we'll be joined by Patrick Smith of Tribe Advisory, who provides an outsourced insurance management function to businesses with a specialism in the sharing and micro-mobility economies. But our guest co-host for the episode is someone that I think listeners will know well, a relative regular on the pod, although he hasn't been in the guest co-host chair since episode two. I think it was episode two of our very first series. He's been on a few GCP shorts since then, but he is Jason Flaxbeard uh, of Beecher Carlson, a good friend of the pod. Jason, uh, welcome back. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm I'm still cross with the the, the cricket yesterday, uh, England losing on the last day. But uh, I, as usual, I'll get over it as I do every time that we we collapse on our batting. But uh, it's it's nice to be travelling again. Honestly, I'm I'm on on planes and trains and and all sorts of modes of transport these days. And it's been fun to get back out there. And a lot of clients are, are calling me up and saying, Hey, uh, uh, can, can we meet? And I'll say, Yes, I'll travel anywhere as long as there's a nice cold beer at the end of it. Yeah, no, sounds good. I'm quite jealous of that. I'm starting to get back into the city a bit now for a few meetings and hopefully doing more of these in person. And as you know, hoping to get over to the States in October for Seeker. Just need uh, President Biden to, to give me the old clear to, to come in. Absolutely. I'll put a word in with you with, with, with Joe. Yeah, he's not busy at the moment at all, is he? Not, no, nothing, no, else no, going no, nothing going on. Going on. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, Jason, you mentioned uh, obviously talking to clients there, and it's it's been a long time since we've had you on the pod. You know, we've had you on one of the shorts uh, during during the COVID times. But what's been kind of keeping you busy then in in conversations with clients uh, during this, this turbulent period and as, as we come out of it? I think the word turbulent is uh, is well placed there, Richard. It's uh, it's it's been a. 18 months of, of COVID discussions. I think the first few uh, few months of COVID discussions were, uh, am, am I covered under my current policies? And the discussions around uh, financing for, for the next pandemic were, was, was something that, um, that that we talked a lot with our clients about. Um, a lot of them are, are, are reviewing COVID in the light of a hard market and have decided that 
that, that they have to, to overhaul the way that they look at risk retention and risk finance. And what, what we've seen largely across the board from clients, at least those clients who are talking to me, is that there, there, there is a, there's a rush towards maintaining so much freak, all, all frequency and so much severity inside uh, insurance programs. The, the, the main discussion that we're having with all of our clients is all around risk volatility and how we how we staff up and how we finance particular events that may occur, which are on the right-hand side of a bell curve, which are on the tail side of a bell curve that, that may adversely affect the, the corporation itself. Items that um, you, you would see from a normal perspective being another pandemic, you know, nuclear events, shutdown of the grid, terrorism events, uh, items like that, huge hurricanes that have have issues with, um, with, with these East Coast portfolios, West Coast earthquakes, um, all, all those sort of things, and emerging risks as well. What does cyber look like? How do you model cyber? How do you actually define what your uh, what your appetite is around an emerging risk? The, the consequences of an attack being unknown as well. It's um, uh, we, we tend to call it gray swan type events. Yeah. Uh, but the the great the gray swan is, um, is is a rare swan, and we, we don't like them when they show up. But what happens when they do show up? How, how prepared are we as a, as, as a broker and a client partner and, and how are we looking to finance this? Is that a real, a real shift then, do you think, Jason, for, for how captives are, are looking to be used? Because so often you, we hear in the past that that's often you, you don't want to put those huge chunkies of fear risks in, in, into a captive. You do want that kind of low severity, high frequency risk, that kind of predictable risk going into the captive. So is this a, a real shift and a clients embracing that, do you think? Do they want to explore how that's going to be done and how that's feasible well, it's interesting you say that um it's always as if you gave me that question <laughs> it's actually one of the ones i didn't give you <laughs> it's one of the ones you didn't give me um i think what happened with covid is a lot of large companies realized that the uh, uh their operations um were not unaffected by a large uh, pandemic but the, the, the way that the stock market reacted to their reaction to covid was relatively forgivable that they actually managed to take a look at their risk financing portfolio. And a lot of companies wrote off a large chunk of, uh, of, of, of money last year to, to support their, their, their COVID activities. And the stock market didn't really affect their price. Um, as you can see, we're in record stock market highs at the moment. So a lot of companies said, all right, I, I kind of get this interaction now between risk and, and how pricing uh, of our stock is, is correlated. Let's, um, let, you know, let, let's take that sort of forgiveness if you, if you will, and, and try and, and try and play that through into the risk financing uh, techniques. The one thing you've got to realize when you take take a look at these Grace One events is a lot of them are in, uninsurable anyway. If you think about uh, wildfire, for instance, what wildfire insurance companies are pulling back. And if you can't if you can't buy wildfire, it doesn't stop the wildfire actually happening. It just stops you uh, buying insurance for it and being able to pay for some of it. So by retaining frequency, a lot of risk managers are, are taking on what they know is going to happen, but that most of them are unwittingly taking on a, a huge amount of grace one uh, and severity type events. And for, there is uh, there is a large dearth of insurance or risk financing opportunities for those those tail events. And that's where I'm spending a lot of my time is trying to work out other risk management techniques to, to solve the puzzle that, that, that allows for risk management around tail events. Is that kind of utilization of a captive though, Jason, is that only going to be feasible for real existing sophisticated captives, maybe with already a strong surplus and they've got capital that isn't being used or isn't being used as efficiently as it could be? Or or, or can this also be kind of arranged for a new or, or young 
captive owner? I think a young captive owner, well, I think all captive owners can actually uh, take advantage of this. Uh, What's important to understand is that if you're stuck with the risk anyway, and insurance companies will not take it off your hands, you have to understand what the risk is. You have to identify it, understand it, and quantify it as best you can. And once you quantify it, financing for it in the right way is is, is the discussion that I'm having. So to to answer your question that you asked me the last time, which I didn't answer, captives do play a big role here uh, because they they can pre-fund for some of these these large losses should they occur. If you think about um, large cyber events, and by the way, we're starting to see a huge amount of of cyber being placed inside captives. But if you think about those, they they can be enormous, as as you can imagine these days for the the companies that um, that, that we deal with over here at uh, Beecher Carlson. We, we model risks and, and they, the, 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 the risk modeling comes out of huge numbers. And the market right now is, is not responding to numbers that big. So what we have a chat with our client is inside the bell curve, how much do you want to retain on the left-hand side of, of, the, of the curve? And on the left-hand side of the curve, especially for cyber, it comes all the, the fines, the penalties, and, and, and all the restoration. But inside, the, 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 as you move from the frequency through the severity part of the curve to the tail, you start thinking about how we, how we stop cyber event happening, how we, we, we mitigate it, how we finance it. Um, and then when you get into the, the large part of the tail, it, it, it's, it's almost disaster recovery plans. And it, it, it's, it's a discussion around how we, uh, how, how we put together a program that allows us to, to come out the other side and give a good story to our shareholders and stockholders and, and employees. And pre-funding some of that through a captive is, is, is an ideal place to, to house it, largely because what gets measured gets done. Yeah, no, really interesting. It's interesting that you say there that uh, you are really starting to see uh, large cyber placements into into your uh, captive book of business. And I'm sure we'll see some kind of more statistics around that uh, later in the year and, and see how cap, because again, cyber is one of those areas, isn't it, Jason, which we've talked about for so long as, as captives have a role to play. And, and it's, it's almost followed a similar kind of curve, maybe as employee benefits, but maybe five or 10 or 20 years behind where employee benefits is now. So really interesting to see if that's materializing. Outside of those discussions, though, Jason, as I said before, you, you do work with some of the largest and most sophisticated captives in the world. How have you seen their captive utilization change, if at all, during during this uh, this hard market cycle? Well, the hard market cycle has is, is allowed all of them to, to focus on volatility. It, it's, it's easy to transfer risk to insurance markets when the market is soft, um, and it's, it, it, it's a rather dull transaction. It's, um, you know, you, you pay money and um, your risk manager speaks to the market, and then you forget about it. But what, what the hard market has done is it's uh, allowed the conversation to morph into more of a, a discussion around volatility management and, and risk financing that, 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 that says, where is the best place for me to use Use my capital. I've got a, a limited bank of contingent capital through insurance markets and ILS and other areas that, that, that I could potentially access. Um, where where is where is it best for me to actually access that contingent capital? Is it in the middle of the bell curve? Is it on the right of the bell curve? Is it on on the left? Most companies are saying it's not on the left. I mean, it, when you get to the middle, to the right-hand side of the bell curve, they're saying, okay, I, I can take on much more of this than, than I thought. And the, what's driving that, um, that, that discussion is the hard market. Because if you know the, the, the loss content of your program and you know the volatility of your program, you're able to say, I'm comfortable with a certain amount of that. But here's where my, my discomfort starts. And that's where I need um, uh, an insurance company to come in with some contingent capital. That's, um, that, 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 that's been the discussion that I've had with most of my clients. Um, and it's the quantification part of that, 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 that that's the, uh, 
um, that has grown up greatly over the last uh, three or four years. And as you know, captives are all about quantification of that risk because you've got to prepare the financial statements which go to the regulators. So the quantification part of that has grown up greatly. You know, the, the RMS, the actuarial modeling, the AAR modeling, all, all of that. We've seen new cyber models come out. A lot of them are proprietary to the different brokers. You know, we, we've seen different models for different lines of business, whether it be deterministic models or you know stochastic models or a lot of scenario testing around cyber outcomes. Um, We've seen companies really drill down into their ERM platforms to try and work out what it is that frightens them or what it is that worries them. Frightening may be maybe a too strong of a word, but it may be a plausible word here. But they're looking at trying to work out how much volatility is on the right-hand side of their curve around all of their risks put together. And the hard market, COVID, everything has forced them into that discussion because that's what they want to protect. And the, 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 the severe risks that a lot of them are saying in, in a hard market, I can take those on. The, the trade is a lot easier to sell to the CFO. So that, that's, that's where I'm spending most of my time, Richard. It's a, it's a fun conversation. Um, and uh, a lot of CFOs, treasurers and risk managers are, are saying this is, this is precisely what we need to do, especially in these hard times. And, and as, as information gets faster, quicker, more accessible, easier to understand, these models will develop and uh, we'll see an acceleration of of risk quantification over the next five, 10 years. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. So let's now go to our risk manager segment of the episode and I was delighted to sit down with a longtime friend of mine and colleague from Airmic, Patrick Smith. Patrick has an interesting and varied background in insurance and particularly captive insurance, which he will explain. But now, through his company Tribe Advisory, performs an outsourced insurance management function for a number of companies with a particular specialism in the sharing and micro-mobility economies. Captives do already play an innovative role for many of the largest companies in that space. We've had some of them on the podcast before. So Patrick and I discuss what the future may hold for that segment. So, uh, Patrick, perhaps a, a really good place to start would be, could you just tell us a bit about your background in insurance management and with captives? Thanks, Richard. Sure. I began my career way back in the late 1970s uh, with Commercial Union, at the time one of the biggest names of insurance in the UK. And I moved into managing business improvement before gravitating more towards consultative roles and, and product and service development. I became the International Director for Risk and Insurance and Claims at Hertz Corporation, and I was part of the global team there, but was directly responsible for all of the activities outside of the US, Um, so APAC, Middle East, the Franchise Network, and uh, all across Europe. And as an integral part of that remit, I was Director of the Hertz Captive in Dublin with what I think was quite a unique role, combining input into the underwriting approach and the captive appetite, 
responsibility for the claims and, and loss management performance, and of course, deciding what risks were best suited to the captive uh, versus the open market on behalf of the business. So it was probably a three-pronged uh, responsibility. And more recently, I co-founded and established an MGA alongside a PCC in Guernsey, entirely focused on uh, UK social housing. So it's been a long career so far, but I've touched upon uh, insurance for all of it and captive for some of it. Yeah, really interesting. And obviously, the I think the probus captive is well is well known. I think probably to to many of our listeners and well known amongst the, the captive community. So as as you say, well, about for four years now, Patrick, you you've run your own company which provides a kind of outsourced insurance insurance management service to to a variety of corporations. Can you tell us a little bit about this and, and how it works? Yeah, sure. So so my, my current business is is Tribe. Uh, feel free to look us up, uh, tribe-advisory.com. And it's a directly regulated uh, intermediary, but it's focused on digital platforms, sharing economy, micro-mobility schemes and affinities. And uh, although we're a regulated intermediary, we take a sort of consultative risk-first view on life by helping our clients manage their global insurance programs, uh, advising on what risks to avoid, what risks to absorb or transfer, and how to finance risks to unblock their paths to growth. So we commonly transact insurance business through through brokers, servicing brokers, and they'll be the access to markets and service the customer experience. And this allows Tribe and myself to determine strategy, manage the client requirements, and to help shape the insurance, which is required in, in really some quite exciting and fast growth businesses and sectors. So in effect, uh, our proposition is we are the educated buyer on behalf of our clients. We ensure that arrangements are scalable and flexible, uh, tailored to the business requirements and really provide a win-win-win for our clients, the servicing broker, the consumer, where that's appropriate, where there's an end user, and of course, uh, the insurer. Yeah, but that term there, educated buyer, Patrick, is really interesting. I, I, I imagine particularly relevant for the types of businesses that obviously you, you say that you work with. You, you, as you mentioned, you specialize in kind of the sharing economy. And, and the, as you say, they're fast growing businesses. They often, I wouldn't say grow too fast, but in terms of having the specialism and education and, and experience and knowledge of the insurance market, for example, um, I imagine and that is a challenge. So how, how unique are the the risk profiles of of the companies in the sharing or gig economy, whatever you want to call it, and how does that impact insurance procurement and and the kind of the conversations and negotiations you have with brokers in the market on on their behalf? Yeah, it's really interesting what you say, Richard, around the sort of pace of growth. Can you actually grow too fast? And I think if you're not putting in place the fundamental building blocks and governance and, and developing the kind of the scaffolding as you grow, it can feel too fast. That, I would say, isn't the case for our clients. And, uh, you know, part of what we do is really help that kind of resilience and sustainability. But what's pretty unique, I would say, in the sharing economy, gig economy, and to to a large degree, uh, micro mobility, is the combination of risks that these organizations need to manage, both at the micro, but also at strategic level. So many companies that we look after are really fast growth and often doubling year on year. One feature is they're very tech led. So the resilience of their digital platforms and the management of data is absolutely critical. Equally, managing the risks 
and opportunities around brand and reputation is is key, particularly in these sectors. But very careful evolution is critical in the growing stages. And I think if you lay on top the inevitable program of fundraising, M&A activity, and the substantial risks around rapidly changing consumer behaviours, and the sort of macro societal, environmental, and regulatory considerations, then there's there's a there's a lot to think about uh, when you think about risk first and insurance second. So we consider all insurance as part of the strategic decision making on risk transfer and or retention. So really around appetite. So really helping our clients think about what risk they want to take what risk they don't want to take, to get clarity on the risk they are already taking, and to really have the conversation around tolerance as being key. But really, as our clients outsourced insurance team, we take a lot of time to educate and guide whilst taking away the pain of the actual sort of workload for them and the heavy lifting. And, uh, you know, importantly for all of our clients, and I don't think it's anything unique to our clients, but cash is king. So insurance that insured is geared and shaped to the real business risks of their organisations at the right price is important to them. We help and understand really the total cost of risk by really uncovering the risk that's absorbed as well as the premium cost. And uh, often we're developing premium methodologies that are closely aligned to the growth and risk metrics. And particularly in fast growing companies, this isn't always annual. It can be per minute, per mile, per trip, or some other kind of relevant much smaller kind of uh, metric. Yeah, it's interesting what you say, particularly about kind of these companies naturally and by definition are kind of new tech and, and very tech advanced. And I imagine that be, by being that way, there is, there should be a lot of data there for use by insurance partners and and also in terms of enabling more of that kind of per minute, per mile, whatever type of insurance products because the, the data should be easy, easily available. Obviously, Patrick, your expertise in, in the sharing of gig economy is, is combined, as we mentioned before, with your, your history in, in captives and alternative risk financing. We're, we're aware that some of the largest uh, gig economy companies already have captives. You know, Uber, Lyft, well-documented, have captives in Hawaii. We, we've had Airbnb on the, on the podcast last year talking about their captive in Hawaii to a degree. Do, do you expect captives, do you expect to see captives and sales being utilized further by the sector as it matures? Yeah, uh, Richard, I think it's inevitable that over time, captives and and sales will be used increasingly over the gig and sharing economy sectors as those sectors grow. And as the successful organisations in those sectors grow, as you say, data is key. And uh, in many of these tech-driven organisations, they are data-rich. Now, now the trick really in terms of management risk is turning that data into really valuable knowledge. But, but my view is why wouldn't captive and sell development and utilisation, why wouldn't it happen? So really, it's a matter of financial maturity. It's a, it's a matter of risk appetite, of strategic thinking, and for the organisations to reach the appropriate size uh, where they can demonstrate where the attritional and predictable loss ends and where the unforecastable and uncertain risk impacts begin. So it's really the same test. There's nothing particularly unique to the market. I think the tests of when to absorb risk and use captives and sales 
the test is the same. But when we add this to peer benchmarking, where many organizations look across the way at their competitors and they see what their competitors are doing. So I think there is benchmarking and uh, horizon scanning of what peers are doing and really an attitude of doing things differently, which is another kind of feature uh, characteristic of these kinds of organisations. Then I think user captives and sales uh, are inevitable. And uh, my belief is for any company in the sector at the point where it makes financial sense and a project to execute the use of captives and sales can be can be resourced and allocated, we'll see more and more adoption of captive mechanisms. It obviously turns upon these organisations having the right expertise and the right advice to have the supporting considering its options. So I think it's inevitable, Richard. This is probably something which is more more of a problem, or not a problem, but a challenge here in the UK and in Europe rather than rather than the States. But do you think that some of the entry costs and some of the associated administration of feasibility studies applications, which are needed, of course, in setting up a captive properly, do you, do you think that can be prohibitive until some of these companies get to a certain size? Well, yeah, I mean, I think size matters, but um, I I think there's just an approach on cash management with these kinds of organisations that even as they grow, that doesn't mean that uh, there isn't a, a sharp focus on cost. So almost certainly entry cost will be an important consideration for all organisations. And of course, size and profitability may be determining factors. But in reality, our experience is that firms in the gig and sharing economy sectors, they're full of really super bright people who get it and and they get this stuff quickly. So we should never confuse their disruptive, flexible and innovative nature with impulsiveness and whilst entry costs must also, you know, will always be important, it has some contents around the business case. So we must always be mindful of the business and its cash objectives, its cash consciousness, its drive for profit. But any move to a captive arrangement will be prefaced, I guess, by a detailed cost benefit analysis and ensuring that costs are balanced by the savings and the advantages of reducing the risk transfer to the external insurance market. That's going to be key. So I think what happens with increasing in size is that the the financial horizons stretch out a little bit more. And actually, the business case for things like sales and captives actually needs that kind of lengthier business case analysis. So I think as firms grow, it may well stack up. And if it does, we should expect increasing interest and uptake. And obviously, the hardening insurance market may help in the short term, but it will also be important to pivot back at the point where it might make sense to do so, do so in any event. So flexibility is going to be vital. And uh, despite a desire to fully commit, I anticipate a reluctance to move to models that reduce future flexibility. So I think a key feature of moving to a sell or a captive arrangement is uh, for flexibility to be maintained and uh, to avoid any feeling with a client that they are somehow locked into a different way of doing it. So welcome back, uh, where I am joined still by Jason Flaxbeard from Beecher Carlson. Jason, uh, a topic we've discussed quite a bit on the pod uh, over the last few years, and uh, I've discussed with you many times, is captives writing more third-party risk. Do you see this as, as an increasing 
interest from captive owners still? I mean, obviously, maybe priorities have changed uh, over the last couple of years. But also, how about completely un- unaffiliated risk? You know, should captives themselves be looking to take advantage of, of this hard market and offering capacity to other you know, insurers or, or, or MGAs? It's uh, it's a very very interesting question, and it certainly is a discussion that I've been having with with many uh, many of my clients. The most savvy of them have gone upstairs to to the C suite and said, "Hey, you know, C suite, the market's hardening. It's uh, it's, it's hardening across the board." And as you saw, the dominoes fall over the last four or five years with property going first, and, and then you know, excess casualty and DNO side, all those different dominoes, different hardening markets. The, the, the same conversation has been had with risk managers and assistant treasurers and treasurers with the C suite. They walked into the C suite and said, "Insurance is costing us so much more than it ever did," and uh, the feedback we're getting from the C-suite in a number of locations is that, you know, if it's getting hard for us, it's getting hard for everybody. What do we understand in, in our company that is better than the insurance com- companies may understand about our industry? Um, is there a way to deploy some of our capital inside the industry that allows us to take advantage of, of a hardening market? So we have had some clients um, uh, review their portfolio and say this would be better off with uh, with some some genuine third party risks, we we have we are we're having discussions with MGAs all the time about managing the, the reinsurance of or, or insurance of their risk in, into some of our captives, and uh, it, it, it's something that that is a constant discussion point with myself and my clients. MGAs are willing to do this. They they look at the capital inside captives and, and they see it as an untapped market. The issue that they have a lot of the time is is, is selling captives that aren't rated. Yeah. So putting risk inside a third party captive that has no uh, has no AM best or S&P rating is, is difficult. It's not impossible, but it's, it's difficult. So that's something that, that we would have to hurdle. But that, that's okay. There, there, are, there are genuinely good fronting carriers out there that, that, that captives can sit behind um, as long as they post the right collateral uh, to, to the fronting carrier. So it's, it's a discussion that, that, that is growing and growing and growing. And um, if you think about how many times have we seen the stats around the, the amount of assets tucked away in captives? Yeah. Most of the large captives have large balance sheets or, or more than adequate balance sheets and are looking at uh, different ways of, of, of improving them and, and taking on appropriate risk. And as we say in, in many pods past, that you know, the diversification of your risk uh, is is a key part of of your risk financing strategy, whether it be across many lines of business, many years of business, or by assuming risk from third parties to to allow non correlation of outcomes. So it's it's something that uh, the, the most sophisticated companies are actually looking into. A lot of them are told by the C suite just to stick to their knitting. We're not interested in, in that. But the conversation from risk managers upwards you know, does take into account uh, sitting behind MGAs or assuming business from. Uh, from third-party carriers, for sure. Yeah, and we know this is already happening. There's a couple of public examples in, in Europe, for example. It's quite common for some captives to to get more involved in, in genuine third-party business. So it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, I presume, Jason, it, it has to be it has to be a long-term decision, does it, for the captive? If the captive wants to start playing in, in that area, does it does it need to be prepared to kind of play in it for the longer term? It does. It does. It's, it's not easy to jump in and jump out because uh, of the investment you need to make in, in the personnel, the, stru- the, the, the structure of your internal um, risk management group, the systems, that sort of thing. If you're accepting business 
from a third party, you think it doesn't correlate with with your the first party business that you're currently writing. But you need to make sure that there, there is a uh, portfolio effect by assuming that business. Uh, you, you have to look at the guardrails of the new program. You have to ensure that the, the third party business cannot provide you with with more downside risk than you're actually taking. You you want the the, the, the sum of your of the risk portfolio that you've got first and third party uh, to be if, if 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 your first party is one and your third party is is one total risk of that doesn't need to be two. It needs to be one point nine or somewhere like that to to allow you to take some portfolio advantage of, of writing this business. And in order to do that, you need more actuaries, you need more uh, underwriters. You need to understand that the, the business that the MGAs or the carriers are selling to you is, is good, good business that that, that does act, doesn't actually um, correlate with what you've got. The last thing you want is to be wildly uh, overexposed to wildfire and then assume more wildfire risk. Um, so uh, we, we are finding that companies are genuinely thinking about this, but in a non-correlated way. So maybe if you do have an overexposure to wildfire, you may look to try and take on third-party DNO risk, for instance. Although there is some correlation between the two, but it's not not perfectly correlated. So that's that, that that's a discussion that, that we are having a, a lot, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, another area definitely to watch this space. It's always exciting to hear about uh, new developments. So I was, I was actually talking to a uh, quite an experienced risk manager. I won't give her name away, but someone that you know well. It's recently come into a, a new job and uh, is at a very large company and they've got a very mature captive and she was like Richard tell me what can else can we be doing what else are you hearing so uh, I always like to hear these snippets that I do pass them on to uh, risk manager contacts and, and captive owners and lastly Jason an area that you have spoken on the pod before and uh, are very interested in experiencing is kind of the structured reinsurance program area and we also had um AstraZeneca's Kevin Steed on the podcast a few weeks ago um they've got a Cayman captive and he was explaining the detail about their structured reinsurance program and how effective that strategy has been for them for the past 15 years or so how has the hard market from what you've seen impacted uh, the demand from corporate insurance buyers and captive owners for these type of structures, but also the capacity available to finance them. I think that the hard market has adversely affected the uh, the capacity for these deals, and the reason why I say that, and, and if my insurance company friends will forgive me for for, for straying into into this, I, I I think that they do a terrific job uh, when they when they underwrite it. But the the question is, where is their time best spent? If I'm doing a, an, an, an aggregated structure that, that includes uh, some property and, and casualty risks, in theory, internally in, 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 the, in the carrier world, that, that risk goes to the property underwriter and the casualty underwriter separately. And then through the aggregation and the non-correlation of those two risks, they're, they're both asked to take a price which is less than they currently get it, that they would get paid on a monoline basis. And because the market's hard, there's, the underwriters seem to be pulling back a little bit and saying, "Look, if I can get paid more by just writing this on a standalone basis, why would I? Why would I throw it into this aggregated structure?" And the, the hardening of the market is pulling those underwriters away from these aggregated deals into these standalone deals where they're going to get paid more rate for the same risk. So I think what what's happened is the carriers are actually pulling back a little bit. They're still interested, uh, but they're pulling back a little bit from these aggregated structures, largely because the um, they can make more money elsewhere and everybody has finite resources, uh, which is a bit of a shame, but I think we'll see it come back. Um, I think we'll see that uh, once the large companies will, will will all go this way eventually, we'll all be underwriting in a completely different way. Maybe that's another pod in the next couple of years. 
but what, once we've uh, once we've passed this hard market and, and, and gone over the hump and we've reached some stability, I think the creativity will come back that, because right, right now everybody's chasing the tail, everybody's chasing rate, everybody's chasing uh, capacity because capacity is being diminished in, in a lot of areas. So I, I think carriers are going, going to stick to, to what they know right now, which is monoline placements. They're interested in some aggregate placements, um, and we will get back to that, I think, once once some stability is in the market. That, that's, that's what I would say, Richard. Uh, ILS is still there. Uh, there's there's a release of the trap capital, hopefully coming in Bermuda and, and other places soon. Uh, and, I, and I believe that this the, the, the rate that companies are getting on, on some lines of business is still attractive to investors. So I think we're going to see um, uh, some more capital coming into the, into, the, into the system over the next couple of years still. Um, and I think we'll get to uh, uh, some stability maybe in two or three years' time, assuming hopefully that, um, that, that we have a benign season this year. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about, obviously, of course, underwriters have been have been pulling back in certain areas and they've been kind of concentrating more on kind of core core business. And so it makes sense why maybe there's been less time and resource put into the kind of structured reinsurance uh, solutions. But at the same time, we're seeing, as we've discussed, captives and captive owners getting more creative with what they're putting into the captive. So it's almost like a cycle here where Obviously, the commercial market pulls back. Uh, insurance buyers have to get more creative of the way they use their captives. And then hopefully, as, as they become more sophisticated, the commercial market returns and then can support them with whether it just be reinsurance or, or other solutions. Because from my conversations with the Airmic uh, members in the captive group, there are members there that have large captives. They've never considered the kind of structured, aggregated approach. But because their captive has grown so much in the last couple of years, they're now thinking longer term, that's where we're going to have to move to. So hopefully that capacity does return. I, th- I think so. And I think that um, uh, the, the, the way that the companies will think about using that capital um, is, is going to change. Hopefully a lot of their capital stays inside the captive. I, I, I know that um, a lot of captives, um, once, once we come out of hard cycles, we'll reevaluate what's inside the captive. And sometimes the, uh, the corporate body corporate will look at it and go, well, we, need, we, we don't need that much money in there anymore. We can pull some of that back. Hopefully that doesn't happen in this cycle and, and the, uh, the companies can say, all right, with that extra capital inside the captive, we can assume this risk or that risk, or we can take on a little bit of an extra chunk of that risk, or we, we can look at things a little bit differently and finance things a little bit differently. Uh, that, that, that would be my sincere hope. And I, I think that will happen. I think companies are, are, are savvy around that. And risk managers especially always like to have that little bank of uh, cash in, the, in, in their back pocket to, to allow them to absorb some of these uh, the, the, these closer to the tail risk shall we say well jason we'll leave it there it's uh, been fantastic as ever to uh have you on to the global captive podcast absolute pleasure uh, my friend and thank you so much for the invitation and uh stay well and um we'll hopefully see you either in, in seeker or in hawaii yes yes hope hopefully both jason uh stay well stay safe and see you next time captives